Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology and Society, a podcast for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chad Velasic. Today, we'll be talking to Nicholas Bauck about his book, A Geography of Digestion, Biotechnology in the Kellogg Serial Enterprise. This book touches upon a history of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and John Kellogg, specifically Kellogg's connection with the digestive system to material processes and assemblages, such as uh, the urban sewer infrastructure, agricultural production, and the food production within the sanitarium itself. So give me. let's go ahead and um, welcome Nick to our show. Welcome, Nicholas. Hello. Thanks for having me, Chad. Great. So I was wondering if we could begin by uh, you just telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my, my professional background is in uh, geography. Um, I'm um, discovered geography um, in my undergraduate days at the University of Wisconsin in Madison um, and uh, ended up majoring in geography and in some ways kind of never looked back. Um, I took a, a break from from school and academia for a while, but then um, returned to get a master's degree um, in geography, at which point I got in which, which was marked the beginning of my interest in um, food studies. Um, at that time, I was really interested in uh, the the some of the legal naming of foods, and particularly in the European Union, where they have these geographical place indicators. Um, so I got really interested in some of the legal history of that um, uh, geographical naming of foods, uh, and then. Uh, for my, my um, um, graduate school, school, for my PhD, um, I went to UCLA, which has a, which at the time at least had a, um, a, a, weight, a heavily weighted um, humanistic 
and cultural and historical geography department, um, which is what I was interested in doing. I was, um, I've always kind of been drawn to um, <clears throat> historical geography and and um, cultural geographic uh, theory as it applies to space and environment and landscape. So uh, at UCLA, I continued that interest in um, food studies, but got um, sort of came across this, what I conceived of as um, sort of a gap in the way people were talking about um, food geography and both in terms of um, production, which, 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 it was um, um, really heavily influenced by like political economy discussions and um, and political ecology, um, like how how landscapes are made by economies and food growing landscapes. Um, <clears throat> but then also within consumption, food consumption studies, um, uh, uh, there were really focused on uh, sort of cultural attributes of um, why and how people eat what they do in certain places. And in, in, in neither of those conversations uh, were people explicitly talking about um, digestion or the process of digestion. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Now, um, maybe there's something I could say about uh, digestion and, and uh, as, a, as a fundamental part of eating um, uh, and how that relates to kind of a food studies or a food geography discussion. So that's how I got into the digestion thing and then kind of fell, fell backwards um, while I was writing my, uh, doing my graduate work and writing my dissertation, kind of fell backwards into the, the Kellogg story, um, um, in part because um, uh, John Kellogg, who was the person who ran the, the um, company in its early years at least um was so kind of he was obsessed with a lot of things but he was obsessed one of the things he was obsessed with was digestion and he wrote a lot about it so it was a good way to start really thinking about like um how does digestion work for this person in this time or how did he think of it um how did he incorporate it into his medical practice and then eventually into his um food production regime um, and and sort of the the geographical twist uh, then is um, um, how do you situate that um, you know time con- contextual story uh, into place? What's what is the what is the place of where this was happening, which is Battle Creek, Michigan, um, and the the kind of Upper Midwest and Michigan landscapes? How do, how did those play into the way Kellogg was able to practice his um, health philosophy of kind of digestive reductionism um, and how did it make the growth of this um, type of eating, um, eating cereal in particular, breakfast cereal that, that is now um, ubiquitous in many parts of the world. Um, so that's, a, that's um, a little bit of my background as it relates to this project. Um, um, I can tell you more about my background if you want. I'll let you um, kind of chip in, though, Chen. Yeah, so um, I, th- I think we could just go ahead and, uh, and move into the book itself, um, if that's all right with you. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we start actually with talking about 
uh, John Kellogg's background here because um, the first chapter uh, on the Battle Creek Sanitarium deals a lot with his his family and, and religious background and into his uh, medical training and eventually um, heading the sanitarium. So could you tell us a bit about about his trajectory there? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's it's important for readers to know that um, as as a case study, the book is um, centered on the the character of um, John Kellogg, who is um, one of two brothers, um, the Kellogg brothers, who kind of ran this cereal business for its first fifty years, basically. Um, they started. Uh, well, so John John Kellogg um, was a doctor, um, and he uh, grew up in Michigan and became a doctor. And um, as he was becoming a doctor, this this path toward medicine, uh, this would have been the 1870s when he was doing this. So quite early in terms of like formal um, medical schools, um, um, and in terms of the uh, uh, sort of increasing access to uh, things like bacteriology and um, scientific discourse within in medicine. He was kind of in the the the, the earlier edges of that in medical schools. Um, and he the whole time he was doing this, it was kind of it was wedded with this relationship he had with the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which had. Um, just itself come into being uh, in the 1860s as um, a new um, Protestant denomination uh, that was based on millennialism. So in other words, a, a impending end of the universe uh, was, was coming soon. And there was this um, theology of um, preparing oneself and one's body for that impending um, end of the world. Uh, so that's kind of, that's where he came from in terms of um, like kind of his intellectual milieu and um, essentially what happened and what I talk about in this chapter is how that, um, that science, uh, that science background kind of um, was played out in the, in the context of his religious upbringing and his religious benefactors really importantly. So the Battle Creek Sanitarium, this the place of um, health that I talk a lot about in this in this book, um, was started and funded and founded by this new religious organization, the Seventh Day Adventist Church, um, essentially as a um, one as a, um, a architectural manifestation of their theology and their health philosophies. Um, health philosophies being things like um, take really good care of your body, don't eat meat, don't drink caffeine, tobacco. They were like kind of these, <laughs> like for, for various reasons, were seemingly ahead of their time um, in the, the way we talk about how to be healthy now. Um, they were saying this, you know, in the 1860s and 70s. And um, um yeah, so they, they uh, and then two, the reason for the Battle Creek Sanitarium was that it was their kind of business model. It's how they stayed afloat as a new 
um, organization. They got people to come and stay at the at the retreat slash clinic slash hospital slash resort um, <laughs> in this kind of idyllic um, woodsy Michigan setting, uh, and people came from from all over, mostly the east east coast, to kind of take a break, pay them some money. Um, go through this health um, regimen to get, make their bodies clean and healthy and ready to go back to the urban urban um, rat race. Um, <clears throat> so Kellogg um, was appointed um, sort of the the director um, in starting in 1876 was appointed director of this sanitarium and took on he he took it on completely he just kind of threw himself into it and uh, did advertising promoting um, did his own kinds of research um, some of which were really wacky if people know the story of john kellogg they know a lot of what he did was really strange he had like electric beds and light baths and these abdominal punching machines and uh, all these these things that we kind of look at now and say that that's like I don't know if I need to do that to <laughs> to be <laughs> to like have a healthy body. Um, um, yeah, that, that you mentioned like uh, in the book too, uh, the road to Wellville, um, the movie, and uh, that's that's how I am familiar with this story at all. I used used to watch that. I don't know why my parents let me, but they I would just watch that movie kind of over and over again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I like, and it was interesting in, in reading that book and watching the movie again for this, when I was doing the research for this book, um, it was interesting to know like that, you know, it's, it's this like, you know, imagined fiction, but definitely based in <laughs> a lot, some reality, like they're, they're going to take their creative license with making that, that story. Um, but a lot of the things that we that we find absurd were in fact definitely documentable things that that Kellogg uh, did, um, like the kind of yeah the machines in particular yeah yeah and they they have them um, it's interesting they have them on display at the Battle Creek um, Heritage Center um, you can go look at these they're very mechanical they're very, they're you know they're trying to be very cutting edge a lot of them are like electricity based. Um, which then was, of course, a really big deal. Um, so, you know, they're trying to, like, it's this kind of new Gidget Gasmo, like, for better health thing um, that was going on. Um, yeah, so there, there, there's some of that. Um, there's a lot of, um, 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 what's, I guess, what's the word? Like, conservative, I guess we would say, like, health advice like very conservative sexual health advice um um uh, striking even by today's by today's standards um, um but but one of the things that that Kellogg was persistent about throughout his published career at least um the the, the things that he wrote about consistently was this concern with digestion um and <clears throat> So I'm kind of in that first chapter to get to kind of get back to your question. That's um, that's what I'm trying to do is set this up as like who's this character who had such an influence? Where did where did he, a little bit of where did he come from? What were his intellectual um, precedents? Who were the people he was surrounding himself with? So in in the first chapter, you'll see 
um, like some of the debates that went on uh, between the spiritual leaders of the church and appointing a director of their uh, their you know their sanitarium wellness center place. Um, uh, and there's so there's like these some conflicts that ensued about how that should be operated. Um, and Kellogg kind of found himself uh, at the, in the, um, the, the diplomatic center of enough of those conversations that he kind of emerged as the person, uh, who, who to whom they granted the, the keys to the place. And he kept them until his death in the, uh, 1930s, I think. Um, uh, he was, or he was director until the 1930s, at least. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a little bit of the the background for the first chapter. I think key there is probably, or an, an, another key there, I should say, is um, um, I get I get um, I, I get really interested in um, the geographical notion of place, and as it applies to um, uh, the the sanitarium and its grounds, um, themselves. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a lineage of, um, um, historical geographical writing about, um, how, how place functions, how place acts as like a, um, uh, a bundler basically of, of different, um, social and environmental attributes that, that make, this, this unique thing, this, um, this, the, the, the point of which in this book is that for people to experience Kellogg's brand of healing, they had to like get on a train and go to Michigan to go to Battle Creek. Like you had to be in the building, like with the, the architecture of the building, um, did things, um, uh, that allowed his brand of healing to happen. Um, and not least, um, and are, and also including things like the the slope of the hill and the soil around. Um, at least this is how they talked about it, right? Um, um, so they they were very in, in, into that notion of, of selling the place as much as they were selling an idea, which I think is really interesting um, from a um, you know from an introductory first chapter sort of hey this is like an interesting geographical story. Here's why. And and so who are they? Who are they trying to to get out there? Could you talk a little bit about the the, the people that uh, trekked out there to the sanitarium? Yeah. So these were um, middle upper class. Um, again, mostly people coming from the East Coast, um, urban areas, uh, but also a large group of you know a large constituency would have been from Chicago. Um, and it, it really was. It was the. It was an. Um, white up middle upper class um mostly moneyed um oftentimes um famous um they had um um there's a list of famous people but people like the the um rockefellers uh ford people like that would um come here um presidents would come and get their picture taken um or stay for a couple nights um um, and, um, so it was this kind of elitist prestige thing to do. Like I can take a week off, I can go to Battle Creek, um, and stay, be diagnosed by this, um, person who seemed, who, who claims to have 
um, insights on how uh, the body functions in certain ways that are going to make me feel more energized or more um, capable of doing um, my work better. Um, and it's just it's just interesting, even just saying that. It's interesting to put in the in the <laughs> in, in the context of how we talk about. Um, our relationship to like a capitalist economy today where, you know, it's like, there's all kinds of programs like that. You know, I'm thinking like Esalen in Northern California, for example, it's like this like super special retreat kind of yoga place where you go and um, cure your body and mind and get ready to like reenter as a new person into back into this um, society that one cannot take on on its own. Um, so I think Kellogg was really, um, you know, he was performing that role as well um, at this time in the late 19th century um, of a kind of, hey, you need a, need, a, need a break, come out here and chill out for a while. <laughs> right. Didn't, didn't he also have um, like a eugenics conference there too? Certainly, yeah. He, w- he would have in uh, – in later years, that probably would have been in the 19-teens. Um, he got really into eugenics. Um, and, but it, it, and it, when you read kind of the, the time periodization of the book, um, just, just for um, clarity for listeners, is um, mostly 1860s through 1900 or so. Um, and, but when you read this, because the idea of the book is that it's kind of the backstory of the emergence of the corporation. Um, so the Kellogg Serial Corporation is something that happened um, in, uh, I think it was incorporated in 1913. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, so Kellogg is is known to history um, as a eugenicist also uh, and should be held um, to critical account for that um, as well. Um, it makes sense when you read the backstory um, how he might have arrived at that. Um, at hosting a eugenics conference or doing lots of writing about it or whatever he did. Um, in that it, he was just obsessed with the application of science to anything. Um, as many, as many people in that time period were. Um, um, so it was, if you could like scientize it, um, he wanted to be a part of it. And if it had to do with humans and human bodies, he wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so I think I think that comes out in the book of like oh here's this like character who you you see doing this um, as it pertains to digestion and it's not like a hard logical leap in the retrospect of um, history like looking at this person in, in his time and place to say that he, he like would have gotten into that stuff right yeah which you talk a bit about um, in the first and, and second chapter so in the second chapter. Um, he's particularly taken by germ theory um, and how this relates to digestion. So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, the second chapter um, is more, it's a more kind of uh, deeper dive into the type of science um, he was uh, using um, and adopting to, to, um, sell to his patients and to keep his benefactors happy and all that. Um, and, um, yeah, so he was, uh, he got, he learned about germ theory in medical school in New York. And at 
in at the Bellevue Hospital and then at the University of Michigan in his medical school, and he became got really into it. Um, and uh, it comes up frequent, early and frequently in his writings about the stomach and about digestion. Um, most notably, there's a nineteen or sorry, an eighteen ninety six book called The Stomach um, uh, that he wrote, uh, and in that book, he he kind of outlines his look to the uh, French bacteriologist um, Charles Bouchard, uh, who had this theory of that was called auto intoxication, and so Bouchard was um, observing or, or trying to make the case, at least, that um, when uh, bacteria sit in the body without movement, uh, it creates um, poison um, or toxins in the body. Um, And so while not untrue in the strictest sense, uh, as we understand it today, um, Bouchard and then Kellogg by sort of um, adoption um, took that to a really logical extreme and Kellogg applied it to eating and moving through food through the body. Um, so he was like, he, he was his message. Kellogg's message, at least in 1896 was, um, um, food should never stop in your body. Like we have to eat to stay alive. And that's this like unfortunate fact, but I'm going to try to make it so that the food never stops so that putrefaction and and toxicity never happen. therefore in your body. And therefore all these like ailments will be cured um, as far as things like headaches and backaches and um, you know, hysteria, like you name it, it was related to how cleanly and efficiently and, uh, quickly and and um how sterile food food could could be in and move through the digestive system um yeah so it's really that that bouchard auto intoxication thing that kicked off um what it set it set a program for kellogg it set it set a like um 15 to 20 year like plan of action for him where he was he was um trying to um, figure out the, the exact right foods that would move the best through the body. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah so in the um in this chapter you also talk about 
some of the some of the measurements that he did um, and in terms of how he wanted to get this zero bacteria number that somehow he reported um, and uh, mm-hmm. and and how that relates to um, you know this idea of of deviance that you also talk about mm-hmm. so um, in relation to that what, what were some of the what were some of the measurement uh, techniques that that he used and um, could you talk a little bit about how like the it seems like the the patients were, were actually pretty uh, excited to get these reports um, and how that led to a very specific kind of uh, diet for them that they, that they often, right. it was like- they often went against that because <laughs> apparently there's a sub economy <laughs> that you also talk about where they could, they can go and, and get some meat. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, Part of the attraction and the salesmanship and the, I mean, in salesmanship in a, in a like, partly in a huckster sort of way, but partly in a like genuinely, this is what we have to offer you. This is, we think we're doing something interesting sort of way. Um, Part of that message was that like, hey, if you come here and hang out with us at our sanitarium and pay us this fee, like, we're going to like, we're going to give you an objective and we have a way of giving you an objective answer of what your body's doing. Um, and then we can know exactly how to fix it. Um, this was, and this is like, uh, th- that's a pretty interesting thing in medicine in the 1890s, um, to, to make that promise. Um, so, um, people ca- would arrive the uh and say this is again like mid 1890s they would get off the train they would go into the the um sanitarium examination room and they would have um uh they would be examined by uh john kellogg um at least the first time he had like a whole staff of nurses and stuff um but he would they they fed the new patients um a very specific uh, uh, like test meal usually and this would have been like it's grain based stuff so they gave them like crackers and breads and um, maybe some fruits and things like that um, like dried fruits um, and then they would um, have the patient come back um, like usually later the same day and they actually inserted a tube down the patient's throat and pumped out <laughs> the partially digested food um, and then measured it for things like um, um, acidity, how quickly it was digesting, how much proteins were remaining or, or carbohydrates were remaining in the, the test thing that they gave them. They, they could do this all numerically and um, 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 compare uh, what they knew the, the, or what they thought at least the food, started with to what it was as it was partially digested and they could say like okay well after a few hours after let's let's say three exactly hours um you've digested um 36 percent of our test meal um and there's this high of a hydrochloric acid level and therefore uh, you know we deem you um he had all these words like you're either hyperpeptic hypopeptic um um and ana, anapeptic um um uh, respectively meaning um 
too much acid, not enough acid, or just totally um, something totally going wrong. Um, and there were a number of other categories. Um, and they, they charted these out. Um, they, 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 they would, they had things, they had limits like, um, okay, between five and 8% is, um, hypopeptic between, uh, 62 and 68%, uh, or this level of, um, whatever they're measuring, measuring for, um, is, um, is this sort of, um, um, problem. And so this is the this is the deviation, right? You're, you're literally seeing you're, you're actually seeing in these charts the lines being drawn and color and they color coded them um, into different types of people. Um, like you are this kind of um, sick person based on where you fall in this chart. You're that kind of sick person based on where you fall in this chart. And that was, I mean, I, I think it's frightening. And yet we still, we do that today with all kinds of things like BMI, body mass index. Um, um, I know like Julie Guthman's written a lot about that. Um, but I, I think about, um, yeah, so how prevalent and freaky that is today, but how comforting that might have actually been um, in the 19th century. Um, to say, oh, like, this is, okay, this is like this, it's like this identity um, thing. And of course, then it's also completely, um, uh, it's, it's, it's creating these bodies, right? It's creating this um, um, ideal body type and reinforcing what it should be. Um, and then, I, I mean, exporting that vision of what a body should be to at a national scale um, when you think about um, why cereal, um, how cereal plays into it and the, the impetus for designing cereal the way they did, it was to get all the bodies into the right square on the chart or into the right cell on the chart. Um, so, yeah, so people would then, they, they would take the results of this test meal and pump their stomach with this tube and take it to the lab, do the measurements, and then, and then prescribe as if it was like a medicine. They would prescribe um, what people should eat for the remainder of their stay at the sanitarium. Um, and it, again, usually it was very grain-based, nuts, fruits, things like that, vegetables, uh, in varying doses and quantities. And... Uh, and people would inevitably, you know, get sick of eating all this like boring, bland food. And there were all these kind of um, incognito places in town that would serve steaks and cigars and things like that. <laughs> like, so it's it's kind of a funny side story that there was this like sub economy of not gross food. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so thinking about the the cereal in particular, uh, of course, the third chapter is uh, is about this sort of uh, serendipitous events that led to not one but at least two <laughs> contradictory stories about the um, invention. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you know the, the cereal was invented, how. Um, these different stories came about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's, I guess, um, I think when you say stories, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sort of interpreting that as 
that there was um, there was kind of a conflict in the creation story, uh, right between and, William and John. Right, exactly. Yeah. So these these two um, Kellogg brothers, who again, who kind of ran the company um, for its first fifty years, um, they. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have a great relationship. Um, for people who know some of the story, will will already know that fact. Um, and it uh, so a lot of the co- sort of different storytelling around the invention of flaked cereal um, ended up having to do a lot with um, intellectual property, um, like who who got. <laughs> who had the rights to this um, product that was all of a sudden by the 1920s and thirties being exported all over the world um, and uh, and sold as it's extremely popular mass market, mass produced, mass marketed uh, food product. Um, So a lot of the, again, the the kind of secondary histories or the storytellings of what happened. um, And even going back to the, the primary documents, like the court, case testimonies and things like that they're just kind of riddled in uncertainty um of exactly what happened but I, so i in the in the book i try to kind of um triangulate between secondary histories and the the some of the primary documents and um it's not the most important thing in, for this book and how it actually happened um so i just try to do my best to, to give kind of the the important details of the story and the important details of the story are that, um, at one point, um, um, it's a story of John Kellogg trying to figure out which, how to make food, how to engineer foods, um, quite literally how to, um, um, design and engineer foods so that they could do his, um, so that they could not get trapped in this auto intoxication thing. Um, so that they could move through the body really quickly. And he was just having a hard time um, uh, uh, doing that without um, the stomach um, creating what he thought was like too much um, acid or too much bile or too much um, uh, or leaving too much um, sugars as byproduct that would go into the bloodstream. Like he didn't want any of that stuff really. Um, So uh, he... Uh, through his way of doing these tests, he's, he um, was tr- experimenting with different ways of baking breads and grains, and um, a lot of that story kind of stems from the backstory of granola, which is a whole other thing that I talk about um, a little bit in the book. Um, but eventually they leave out this like um, sheet of mashed wheat um, and uh, it dries out, it, uh, and they um, send it. They they bake it and then crack it, and it turns into what to us would look something like cornflakes. Um, they were made with wheat, importantly enough, at the time. Um, um, but they but but it's this uh, process of you, you take you take wheat, you mix it with water. You make this doughy kind of thing, um, and you flatten it out through um, kind of like, again, what we might think of as like pasta rollers um, that they uh, appropriated from another um, 
kitchen use that they were using them for. And now off the top of my head, I can't remember what that was. Um, but they, they, they essentially took these um, steel rollers, like two foot long steel rollers and rolled this mush through them to create the um, thinness, this thin layer that could be dried out and then kind of cracked like with a hammer after baking it again into flakes. And there was something about like the, the, um, the property of the flake itself that performed the way that Kellogg wanted it to in his chemical lab analyses. Um, it left the right amount of sugar. It, um, it tended to um, help people not make as much stomach acid when they digested. Um, and so he thought this is great for him. It was this, it was the miracle food, right? It was the thing he was looking for. It put everyone in the right cell in his chart. Um, uh, and, um, um, or it put enough people, um, or it was, or at the very least, it was a, it was a thing that he could, um, talk about and sell. Um, so that, that's the controversy. The, the controversy, the different stories are basically like, well, who left out the wheat? Who put it through the rollers? Who, who mashed it? Who broke the chunks off with a hammer? Uh, <laughs> and so for me, I, I don't really care about that for, for this book, um, but I do want to represent it um, as accurately as possible, and in part because it's, just, it's also important to the uh, cultural history of the Seventh-day Adventist uh, church. So, I, you know, I want to at least do respect to that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then in this chapter, you also talk about the role of John's wife, Ella, specifically in the kitchen. And, and you also make this um, connection here between, you know, place and making of cuisine, you know, cuisine versus kitchen, um, some of these important differences. So so could you talk a little bit about uh, Ella's role and, and uh, as well as like the role of the kitchen um, in, in terms of Kellogg's sanitarium and, and science? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they ran they ran an experiment kitchen, um, which is where a lot of this, including the cornflakes story that I just told, which is where a lot of that happened. Um, and um, not uh, at at some point in it was I want to say eighteen ninety three, um, his John Kellogg's wife Ella uh, became the director of that experiment kitchen. So she got really, I mean, she bought in to what John Kellogg was trying to do. She was a huge supporter. And, um, but she kind of took a, took her own way too, um, with the running of the kitchen itself. So she would, um, you know, it was kind of, it was this very hierarchical thing with John Kellogg at the top. So he would say like, we need this thing to happen. And then she would like try to figure out how to, um, um, bake, you know, he, you know, he'd say, say like, we need, um, wheat mixed with corn, um, baked for three days or something like really ridiculous, um, and add a little bit of, of like tomatoes to it or something <laughs> like, and then that'll be our, um, our bread snack for the patients tomorrow. And then she would like figure out how to make that all happen. Um, and uh, yes, but she was really into this notion of the um, the making of a cuisine, which is what they were doing essentially. They were making their own cuisine um, as um, a very place rooted thing. 
Um, and not to say like, oh, this is happening in Michigan. In terms of uh, what I mean instead is um, this is a place-rooted thing in terms of um, it, it has to happen in this kitchen. Like I'm going to set up this kitchen such that the types of things that we need to make are easier to make. Um, like we have to have a certain kind of oven that gets to a certain temperature. We have to have like baking trays. We have to have like uh, places to roll out doughs and places to dry fruits and vegetables and places to um, blend beans and things like that. Um, so all, this whole like implementation is um, it's the geographical um, sort of moment of doing a um, cuisine. Um, uh, it's not just like people here eat this kind of, in this country, eat this kind of food. It's like, um, it, it's more like the Italian cucina or a, a number of languages have this, um, where the, um, German, Portuguese, where they, the, the word for cuisine is the same word for kitchen. Um, and so I was just kind of making that observation in the book that, um, it's, misleading in a way in English that we have this separate words for those two things. Um, you know, one derived from, from Latin, one derived from German, um, kitchen and cuisine. Um, it's interesting that we make that distinction so predominantly in English because it kind of hides, um, the fact that you need the geographical place-based kitchen component in order to realize the cuisine. Absolutely. So, so the kitchen and and the tools within it are part of this extended digestive system uh, landscape, as as you put it. So, um, thinking about that, another another sort of system or or um, object here was the development of the uh, sewer systems, uh, which Kellogg played some role in. Um, so what was his role uh, in this and, and why was it so important for him and, and uh, his sanitarium? Yeah. And it kind of gets into, um, you know, the core of the book too, just, just to flag for listeners too, um, that the geography of digestion here is really that is, is really making the argument that John Kellogg's version of digestion um, could not have happened without these very material, very spatial connections to other um, technologies and landscapes in in southern Michigan at the time. And so, so as you said, the the the, the sewer system of the town uh, <laughs> is a really important part of Kellogg being able to practice a sterile digestion. You know, he, this was the he was in charge of the sanitarium when the city of Battle Creek went from outhouses and privies um, um, to a, a centralized water carriage sewer system. Um, and it's not uncommon that that would happen in this time and time period in the United States. Um, but what is really striking is that um, while he was um, sort of refiguring what he called the modern stomach at his sanitarium, he was also for a decade served on the board of the Michigan state board of health um, as a, a, a member and got really involved in the um, design and implementation of uh, the sewer system in towns throughout Michigan, uh, including of course, in battle Creek. So he, you know, his, his, vi- he, pro- he never put it this way that I saw in any of 
the writings that he did. Um, but he was by his actions and by his practice actually, um, performing this kind of urban infrastructure, the, the, the making of the underground urban landscape of Battle Creek as an extension of what he was doing to the, to the more visceral, more fleshy tubes inside of people's bodies. Um, they were they, he he was kind of connecting those two tube systems in a way if you want to think about it like really graphically or visually um, one being um, iron and the other being uh, flesh inside flesh inside people's digestive systems uh, and again that was it, it all made sense to him and, and it there there is a logic to it um, when you get into his his rationale at least. Um, uh, that it, it's like well if if we want to stop um if we want to stop stagnation in other words if you want food to keep moving through the body then we should also stop stagnation um in uh like the human waste um privies and outhouses um that should have a flow to it as well and indeed um it, it's like <laughs> It's it's interesting and fun to kind of imagine like, okay, so he was actually connecting like his philosophy was going from bodies to the Kalamazoo River to Lake Michigan to the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, you know, he was like kind of doing that flow, whether he wrote about it that way or not. Yeah, that's really interesting that he has this already this, yeah, it, it, extensive landscape uh that you know now we're talking about but then certainly uh, you know as far as i know no one else was was talking about it in that way um so the other part of it too being the um nearby agriculture that he also had a a role in um, that that affected the sanitarium and and this landscape of uh, of digestion. So, what what was so important about um, the changes to to agriculture at this time, and and how did it relate to Kellogg? Yeah. So, yeah, and this is you're pointing toward kind of the fifth and and last main chapter of the book, um, um, uh, which yes is about the agricultural um, hinterlands in Southern Michigan that, that supplied the, um, what became to be the mass amounts of um, wheat and then eventually corn um, that, that supplied all of their health food products, not least uh, cereal, of course. Um, Yeah. So the agriculture part again, and it's the book, if you've kind of been following along, you you may have noticed that there's this kind of, um, um, scalar um, transect, like you start the conversation of the book uh, very much um, in the stomach and the the scientific health philosophy, and then you go out to um, the the food lab, and then you go out again to the city, and now we're going out the furthest amount to the uh, they're the the farthest distance. We're going out to uh, like the farmlands and as far away as maybe uh, other states like that um so we're really bringing the digestive system out away from its from its um human body at least um and uh yeah so the agriculture thing um it's interesting for a a couple reasons one was the the introduction of um 
uh, or the intensification of um, me- mechanic mechanical um, agriculture, mechanized agriculture, um, was a huge part of um, uh, dis- you know that that was a discourse at the time among farmers and among um, city and, and state governments and agriculture experiment stations and um, people were really interested in how do you pl- um, apply these notions of um, uh, um, increased efficient soil utility or um, soil fertility? Um, how do you, you know, get the most out of your soils? How do you, how can you manage more and more acres? Um, and it all taps into the, the, the globalizing. Uh, it's part of the conversation of the globalizing economy of agriculture where, um, you were, you know, you were on this, um, what uh, a, a scholar named Michael Goodman called the technological um, uh, treadmill and talked about that in terms of agriculture, where you just have to keep um, applying more and more inputs to fields um, to make them grow more and more, um, in this case, wheat and corn. Um, and uh, uh, so Kellogg. Kellogg's connection to that is the simple observation that a they were a huge consumer of these grains and so um, were benefiting from cheap and easy access to to mass market their food products um, uh, and b they were connected in a very sort of poetic geographical sense in that one of the major actually sorry two of the major um, manufacturers of large-scale mechanized agricultural implements, um, Advanced Thresher Company and Nichols and Shepherd Farm Machinery Company, um, were both based in Battle Creek. So down the road <laughs> from, from the health sanitarium, you had the, the, the wrought iron factories that were pumping out thousands of threshers and, and combines and um, harvesting machines they were exported all over the country, really, but mostly the Midwest, but all over the country, um, um, so that um, farmers could um, kind of um, take part in their or participate in this um, what, what we now now know as the death of the family farm and the rise of um, industrial agriculture. So the health food was um, um, uh, a reaction against um sort of a local <laughs> a local organic farm and and Kellogg wanted to replace that ecology and that ecosystem with this large scale sterile um <clears throat> type of of agriculture that promised at least for him and he, the promise that he made was that um it would it would um that that food was better for you basically and I think that's a really interesting point um, that I kind of came across in doing this research is that um, while while um, our our sort of national consciousness reaction um, against industrial agricultural agriculture these days is that we should react against it and do something different, um, which um, I believe we should. Um, but it comes from sort of the same spirit that Kellogg was coming from in that. And that spirit is there's something terribly wrong with our food system and we need to do something different. You know, Kellogg was saying that and he did 
went towards industrial agriculture. We're saying that now going against <laughs> industrial agriculture. So it's just like a neat, it's a neat his, kind of historical reminder to just be careful of like, um, 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 the, the precedent for your, your kind of rationale or, or the way you're, um, thinking about, um, food systems. Yeah. In the, in the epilogue, you, you say something along the lines of biodiversity of the gut is a political move. So I was wondering if you could speak on that and, and really just how, you know, besides what you just spoke about, um, how this story relates to today's ideas around, around health and, and, um, food production and things like this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so the the politics of the book and I I tend to, just my style and my personality is that I'm I'm um I'm not heavy-handed with the politics, but there but there is a strong politics to the book really, which is that um that um we should not think of human health as something confined to the body inside the skin as we know it. Human health is um, always and inextricably entwined with the landscapes that surround us that we look at. And we can use those landscapes, in fact, to read the health of human bodies. And that's what I'm trying to do it really in this book is um, give a little like methodological um, practice for how we could might actually do that. Well, how do you read into someone's body by looking at a landscape. Uh, and that's really, even though the Kellogg story is the case study, the sort of methodological practice move is to do exactly that. And to me, that's, that's the political move too, is that um, like, Hey, let's pay attention when we have conversations about public health and, um, or individual health, like people like with cancer, like let's talk about, Let's talk about on a on a large scale or over a population scale at least, at least. Let's talk about the landscapes where people live first, um, um, or in addition to the like individual cancerous body, because they're they're un, they have to be tied together. Well, Nicholas, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to wrap up with our traditional last question here. Um, what, what project are you working on now? What's next for you? Yeah, great question. Um, so after um, I wrote this book, um, I actually did a whole a whole um, other project that was very different. Um, that was based um, in the American Desert Southwest. Um, it's a it's a project about the um, uh, visual history of the Grand Canyon, actually in Arizona. <laughs> and um, that project is also finished. It's called Enchanting the Desert. Um, but my what I'm working on now is is related very much to that Southwest desert, um, theme. Um, I'm doing some work, um, with some historical documents, uh, in the Mojave desert in uh, Southern California, between, uh, the desert between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Um, that's where oh, I'm from. No way. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we'll have to talk about that then. Um, uh, and, um, doing some, uh, again, looking at some historical documents, um, from the USGS about that region. Um, but interestingly enough, um, um, I'm, have, I'm, I'm really interested in something that came up in the geography of digestion book was this, this notion of how do you do, do, how do you translate 
these concepts in geography and in STS and in history of science, um, like network, um, like landscape, like, um, like, like space. Um, and there, there are many theorizations of how these things work. And one of the things over the past five or six years that I've really noticed and gotten um, really into <laughs> is what are the uh, what are the visual articulations of some of those ideas? So often they appear in uh, textual form, um, and um, I'm really interested in how you take something like like this concept of network, um, specifically as it's applied in geographical theory building, um, and visualize it um, with the aim of um, then further strengthening the way we're using our spatial metaphors, things like spatial metaphor being something like network. Uh, but there's also other metaphors like hybridity or verticality. Um, there's lots of things floating around, again, like geography, STS, um, environmental humanities. There's a lot of these spatial metaphors that are going um, unvisually examined. And so um, actually this fall, I'm beginning... Um, uh, I'm, I'm retooling, actually. I'm going back to school and beginning a Master of Fine Arts program uh, at the University of Minnesota, uh, where I'll be exploring exactly those themes and making um, some visualizations um, based on, on the geographic um, theory that I know and like so much. Well, that sounds really interesting. I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. This has been great to talk to you, Chad. Absolutely. So, yeah, we've been talking to Nicholas Bouch about... Uh, a Geography of Digestion, Biotechnology, and the Kellogg Serial Enterprise by UC Press. Uh, thank you for being on the show today, Nicholas. Thank you. Really a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Uh, take care. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.